Welcome to Trivial Knowledge, a little bit about a whole lot. My name is Stephanie, and I'm excited to bring to you this next episode of Trivial Knowledge. Today we will travel to China to learn about a silk manuscript, and then learn about the largest animal ever known to fly. But before we start, here's a little bit of background for those who are listening for the first time. Each podcast episode brings you a weekly dose of knowledge from five different topics drawn from four broad categories. And to add to the fun, one topic will be acquired from a random Wikipedia page. With such an extensive range of topics, there's going to be something here for everyone. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to my podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now let's dive into episode 18. From Subterranean Rivers to a Silk Manuscript. Social Sciences. First written 2300 years ago, the true silk manuscript wasn't uncovered until 1942 when tomb raiders discovered an intact tomb in a suburb of Shangsha. Dating back to 300 BCE, the manuscript contains both text and illustrations and was created to appear similar to a divination board. The silk manuscript is ringed by illustrations of 12 gods, representing each of the 12 months. Each side of the manuscript represents a season, and on the four corners there are illustrations of trees, which symbolizes the pillars holding up the heavens. In the center of the manuscript is the main text, separated into two sections, which were written in opposite directions of each other. One section was twice as large as the other, and can be called the inner long text. It is divided into three subsections, the first of which in quotes from the translation of the True Silk Manuscript by Li Lung and Constance Cook says, Warns about unnatural events and demonic influences should the year be improperly calibrated or the calendar contravene, thus offending the high god. The second section discusses the importance of a proper calendar in receiving a good year from the gods. The last section warns that those who are not respectful in their sacrifice to the gods will run into trouble. The shorter text, also divided into three sections, discusses how the four seasons were created, how the gods support the heavens on five different color pillars, and how the gods divided time into periods, days, months, and years. Other small sections of tests are congruent with the various months and gives things that should and should not be done each month. For example, in the second month, Ru, you can send out an army or build a city, but you cannot marry off a daughter. This manuscript has given incredible glimpses into the ancient history of China, but another interesting aspect of its history is its provenance, where it came from. As mentioned before, tomb raiders found the manuscript in an intact tomb that also contained a sword and scabbard in 1942. The Tomb Raiders sold their findings to a local dealer who was able to get the silk manuscript mounted on paper. A couple years later, an antiquities dealer named Sai Ji Chung purchased the manuscript from the dealer. Soon after his purchase, he and his family had to flee from Japanese troops who had invaded Shangsha. He was able to take the manuscript with him in an iron tube, but unfortunately he and his family were caught on an island. His wife and daughter, after being threatened, escaped by jumping into a pond, but neither knew how to swim and they drowned together. 
Soon after, Mr. Sai and his four other children were able to flee to a mountain town. An amateur historian, Mr. Sai focused on deciphering the manuscript that he had purchased in an attempt to get his mind off his wife and daughter's fate. Despite being on his own with no reference books to aid him, he was able to decipher much of the manuscript. In 1945, he published his findings through a local printer. Two years later, he traveled to Shangsha to sell some of his possessions. John Hadley Cox, a 34-year-old American who worked for the Office of Strategic Services that preceded the CIA, was an old acquaintance of Mr. Tsai. Mr. Cox also enjoyed art and history and had read Mr. Tsai's essay and asked if he could buy the manuscript from him. They agreed on $10,000, and because flying out antiquities from China wasn't entirely legal, Cox enlisted a colleague to help get it back to the U.S., which they did successfully. A few months later, after the sale, Sai asked for the manuscript back, but Cox initially ignored all requests before finally making a vague promise he never fulfilled. In 1949, communism took over in China, and Tsai was no longer able to reach out to Mr. Cox. In 1964, Cox sold the manuscript to a J.T. Tai, a collector working on behalf of a famous art patron known as Arthur M. Sackler. Sackler bought it for possibly as much as $500,000, and it would become one of the most important pieces he collected. Mr. Sackler, almost immediately upon purchasing it, was concerned about its provenance and often said he would like to return it to China. He almost did in 1976, but the person he was supposed to meet with was ill, so the meeting never took place. In 1980, he had planned to donate it to a Beijing museum which was being constructed, but he died in 1987 before the museum ever opened. Today, it is located in an underground storeroom located near the Washington Mall in Washington, D.C. It is owned by the Arthur M. Sackler Foundation. For anyone looking to learn more about the manuscript, you can look up a book by Li Ling, a prominent expert on ancient Chinese history, who recently published a book in June of 2020 called The Chu Silk Manuscripts from Zendaku Shengsha. Sports and Entertainment Today, we are going to learn about a novel written for adults that has been listed in the top 100 fiction books on many lists throughout the years. Called The Prime of Miss Jean Brody, the book was initially published in The New Yorker before becoming a short novel in its own right. The book was published in the 1960s and was written by Muriel Spark, a Scottish author from Edinburgh, Scotland. Born Muriel Camberg, she grew up in Edinburgh with her parents Bernard and Sissy and her older brother Philip. As a child, she loved to read and her parents allowed her to read whatever she wanted. Within walking distance of her home was the Morningside Public Library, the largest branch library in Edinburgh at the time and she would visit often, even using the library cards of her brother and parents to ensure she had enough books to read. Among her favorite books were adventure stories with Robert Louis Stevenson, one of her favorite authors. Growing up, she attended James Gillespie's School for Girls in Edinburgh, where she was known as the school's poet and dreamer. She went on to attend college and soon after graduation traveled to Zimbabwe where she married Sydney Oswell Spark. 
The two had a son together, but the marriage didn't last long, and soon after they divorced, and Muriel Sparks returned to England in 1944, where she worked in military intelligence during World War II. After World War II, she became the editor for Poetry Review, which was a journal of the Poetry Society. The first short story she wrote was called The Seraph and the Zambesi, which won a competition catching the attention of publishers. One publisher by the name of Macmillan commissioned her to write a novel, to which she agreed. The novel, called The Comforters, was written in 1957 in a small cottage she rented in the English countryside. Per an article in the Scottish Review of Books written by Alan Taylor, she said on novel writing, I soon found that novel writing was the easiest thing I had ever done, far easier than writing a short story or a poem or a piece of criticism. I found that the novel enabled me to express the comic side of my mind and at the same time work out some serious theme. Her most famous novel, though, is the one we are here to talk about today. The Prime of Miss Jean Brody, completed in a little over four weeks, the short novel was first published in The New Yorker. It focuses on a controversial teacher, Jean Brody, who teaches at the Marsha Blaine School for Girls, set in Edinburgh in the 1930s when fascism was rising in Europe. She singles out six young school-age girls, Monica, Sandy, Rose, Mary, Jenny, and Eunice, who become known as the Brody set, and follows them until they turn 18. Ian Rankin said of the character in an article he wrote in the Daily Beast in 2017 that, Jean Brody isn't a devil, but she does lead some of her schoolgirl charges into errors of judgment with fatal and life-changing results. The character is actually modeled on one of Spark's own teachers, Miss Christina Kay. She taught Spark for two years, introducing her to subjects that were not part of the normal curriculum, including the Italian Renaissance, the 19th century novel, and the allure of Mussolini. In the book, Jean Brody has a similar teaching style and shows fascination of Mussolini and Italian fascism. And this provoking theme of the story is followed through the book amidst romance and love triangles as well. The book has even been turned into a play and a movie with Maggie Smith playing Jean Brody, and it is known as one of the great performances of the 1960s. Muriel Sparks died in Tuscany in 2006, and the National Library of Scotland now houses her personal archive. For anyone interested in life in Edinburgh in the 1930s, this novel, with controversial, provoking themes, is a recommended read. Science and Technology one of the largest, if not the largest, flying creature ever is the Quetzalcoatlus northropii, a type of pterosaur. First discovered in 1971 by Douglas Lawson, a geology graduate student in the Javelina Formation within Big Bend National Park in Texas, it didn't even receive an official name until four years later. Lawson had the honor of naming the pterosaur and decided on Quetzalcoatlus, named after the Mesoamerican serpent god Quetzalcoatl, and Northropi, honoring John Knudsen Northrop, the founder of Northrop Tailless Flying Wing Aircraft. If anyone has seen an Andean condor, it's a pretty big bird. In fact, it's the largest bird species alive today, with a wingspan of 10 feet. The Quetzalcoatlus, though, dwarfs this bird with a wingspan of a whopping 33 to 40 feet. 
When it was first discovered, it was believed to only weigh 80 kilograms or 180 pounds, but recently more accurate models were created with most paleontologists agreeing on a weight between 200 to 250 kilograms or 440 to 550 pounds. The question then became how could an animal that weighs almost half a ton fly? The first answer came in its hollow bones. Per Mark Whitten, a paleontologist and author of pterosaurs, in a quote published in Wired by Matt Simon in 2013, he says, This means the skeleton is inflated by air sacs like a set of bony balloons growing in proportion without gaining a lot of additional weight. This has obvious advantages for a flying animal, permitting the development of a very large and strong skeleton, which is also very lightweight for its size. The next answer came in how the animal launched itself for flight. It was initially believed to lift off like a bird using its hind legs, but more recent theory by biomechanist Mike Habib and Jim Cunningham has it lifting off using all four limbs in what is known as a quad launch. Whitten says of this theory in the same article described previously, some launch using their legs alone, while others take off using all four limbs with the arms generating most of the vertical thrust during takeoff, seen in several bat species. The latter is actually a lot stronger than a hind limb launch as the biggest set of muscles in the body, the flight muscles, are directly employed in generating the necessary thrust to remain airborne. Now what happened once this enormous animal was airborne? It is believed that it mostly glided high in the sky at elevations of 10,000 to 15,000 feet and was able to reach speeds of up to 80 miles per hour and could fly for 7 to 10 days. Not only was the Quetzalcoatlus good at flying, it was also pretty good on land. Standing as tall as a giraffe where it hunted smaller land creatures for its food supply. It had a sharp pointed beak that was longer than a person, measuring at 2.5 meters or 8 feet. A smaller version of the species is about half as big and is known as Quetzalcoatlus sp, receiving the name when it was determined to be its own species in 1996. These pterosaurs lived during the Cretaceous period. And one last fact about these remarkable animals. The Quetzalcoatlus was used by the U.S. Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, or DARPA, in 1985 as a model for developing an experimental unmanned aerial vehicle. Geography and World Culture Rivers that run underground can be found throughout the world and can be both natural or man-made. Natural subterranean rivers are created over long, long periods of time. It all begins when rainwater seeps into the ground, moving downward, until it hits a rock it can no longer flow through. As more and more water accumulates, the pressure increases until it is enough to push the water through a slight crack in the rock. Within the rock, the flow of water is dependent on both the rock's porosity and the rock's permeability. Porosity describes how much of a rock's volume is made up of empty space. The more porous a rock is, the more empty space is available for the water to flow through. Sedimentary rocks are very porous and therefore water flows through easily. Permeability describes a substance that allows liquid and gases to flow through it. So therefore underground water most easily flows through rocks that are both porous and permeable. 
A common rock found underground is limestone rock, which is honeycombed with tunnels and cones. Rainwater can easily flow through its tunnels, tracking its way out, and the water will then erode surrounding rock, producing tunnels, which eventually turn into underground rivers. Tracing subterranean rivers can be difficult as they often flow through narrow passageways where people or even recording devices can't fit. Scientists have developed several different types of methods to determine where these underground rivers resurface at. The first is suspended solid material in the water and seeing where it comes out. A second method is placing common salt in the water, which can then be measured using a conductivity meter. The increased salinity of the water is typically minor and thus not harmful to the ecosystem. One of the more common methods used is with organic dyes. For them to be detected, they must travel rapidly and are typically measured using a specialized instrument to determine concentration. Fluorescein has been one of the more common dyes used. Recently, the longest underground river in the world replaced the previous held champion, the Philippines Porto Princesa Subterranean River. Now the Sistema Sac Actun in Quintana Roo, Mexico holds the record at 95 miles long. It can be accessed through cenote or sinkholes on the surface of which it has over 150, some hundreds of feet in depth. Mayans use these cenotes to hold religious rituals. The most famous is probably the Cenote Sagrado in Chinchin Itza. So now we know what subterranean rivers are. Where can we see them? Alex Temblador published an article on Oyster.com on March 1st, 2017 that lists eight underground rivers that you can see, which I will link on my website. The Rio Secreto in Mexico and the Rio Camoy in Puerto Rico can both be explored on walking tours. Several can be explored by boat or kayak, including a river in Laos, which is a four-mile river with majestic passageways that are 393 feet tall and 654 feet wide. The Puerto Princesa River in the Philippines, a UNESCO World Heritage Site, can be partially explored by canoe, but only 600 visitors are allowed per day. Animals that can be seen on the tour include crab-eating monkeys, birds, and white-bellied sea eagles. Now, if you want to float down an underground river in a life jacket or snorkel, then you can visit the Escaret River in Mexico, where you can also explore Mayan ruins and caves. For those who would like to read a whole book on underground rivers from the science behind them to those written in myths and fiction, you can read Underground Rivers from the River Styx to the Rio San Buenaventura with Occasional Diversions by Richard Hagen. I will have a link on my website. Today's Random Topic Our last topic today, brought by the Random Wikipedia page, takes us back to the mid-19th century and to the very first Geneva Convention. The Geneva Convention of 1864 was the first of four Geneva Conventions to occur. To understand the historical context of the first Geneva Convention, we first need to travel back to June 1859, where the Battle of Solferino was taking place. A man by the name of Henry Dunant, a banker from Geneva, was traveling in northern Italy on private business when he was unlucky enough to find himself in Castiglione during the Battle of Solferino. 
Participating in the relief effort, he was horrified not only at the number of casualties, with over 22,000 wounded and 4,500 killed, but also how frenzied the relief effort was. According to Francois Bugnion, the official historian of the International Committee of the Red Cross, ambulances were poorly marked with each country using a flag of a different color, white for Austria, red for France, yellow for Spain, and black for other countries. Soldiers would at best know only the markings of their own ambulances. Three years after this experience, Dunant wrote a book about his experience and efforts to treat the wounded. It discussed how there was no organized help for those injured and sparked a conversation on how relief work should be organized. On February 9, 1863, his book was discussed at the Geneva Public Welfare Society Conference chaired by Gustave Moynier, a lawyer. In 1863, another conference was held, which was a prelude to the first Geneva Conference in 1864. The conference was held between October 26th to 29th with General Dufour as president. 36 people were in attendance with representatives of 14 governments, and they discussed the voluntary medical personnel be attached to the armies wearing a distinctive sign on their uniform, a white armlet with a red cross. This was the beginning of the Red Cross movement. The following year, the first Geneva Conference was held in 1864. Representatives from 12 European states were in attendance, and after two weeks of deliberation, the Convention for the Amelioration of the Condition of the Wounded and Armies in the Field was signed. The 12 original nations who signed were the Swiss Confederation, the French Empire, the Grand Duchy of Baden, the Grand Duchy of Hesse, and the kingdoms of Belgium, Denmark, Spain, Italy, the Netherlands, Portugal, Prussia, and Wattenberg. Included in the articles were the neutrality of the military hospitals and ambulances when taking care of the sick and wounded. Those working in the military hospital or ambulances were also safe until which point they rejoined the corps they belonged to. Wounded and sick soldiers should be cared for no matter what nation they were from, and also it established the flag with the Red Cross on white background to be adopted for ambulances and hospitals. Following this first Geneva Conference, three additional ones were held in 1906, 1929, and 1949, further establishing humanitarian treatment during war. And that concludes this episode of Trivial Knowledge, a little bit about a whole lot. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope you were able to take away some interesting facts that were new to you and that you can share with friends and family or at your local trivia night. If you would like to learn more about topics that you enjoyed today, you can access links to more in-depth articles on my show notes blog post on my website, www.trivialknowledgepodcast.com. If you have questions or would like to leave comments about today's episode, please email me at trivialknowledge5 at gmail.com or contact me via social media links on my website. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with your family and friends. I look forward to our new adventures next week when we will learn about the Marvel Comics Super Special and much, much more. I will end this episode with a quote from Jefferson Smith in his book, Strange Places. Wisdom cannot be stolen. It can only be shared. Join me next week to learn a little bit more about a whole lot.